Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor George Markowski, who is a professor and former chair of computer science at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, where he runs a cyber society lab. He was chair and professor of computer science at the University of Maine, a visiting scholar at the Rochester Institute of Technology, a visiting professor at uh, RPI, and the manager of special projects in the computer science department of IBM's Watson Research Center. His research interests are theoretical methods in computer science and the impact of computers on society. Welcome, George. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start with one of your older papers. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it was relevant then. It is increasingly relevant now, I think. So it's entitled Crowdsourcing Big Data and Homeland Security. Um, and in that paper, you discuss ways that crowdsourcing could help homeland security. And, uh, you know, you review some, some successes and possibly some failures in this area. You want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Be happy to. Do you just want me to talk? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is the paper about? Uh, uh, how, 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 could, um, how could, you know, big data and crowdsourcing specifically help in the homeland security arena? Well, uh, you know, one of the things, it, it, to some way I was picturing this as an extension of uh, the neighborhood watch. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of us kind of rely on our neighbors. Like, for example, if, if you have good neighbors and you're going away for a vacation trip or something, you might just mention to your neighbor, you know, we're, we're going to be out of town for a week. Could you just keep an right. eye? Yeah, you know, that way. Or, or you know, if you're going to be away, but you're going to have some people come work on the house. You know, you tell your neighbor, okay, yeah. these aren't burglars, that sort of thing. So uh, in particular, the, one of the things that got me thinking a lot about this was the uh, Boston Marathon bombing. Right. Uh, and within relatively short time, uh, people uh, dis were able to identify the culprits and and track them down and a lot of that happened because you know this store had a video camera and there was some other uh, footage that was put together from various places okay so they were able to to identify where the blast came they were able to track um uh, some of these people and and then other people recognized this, some of the grainy shots so so there was a lot of information that came from the community yeah. to um, identify the perpetrators. There was a, another case uh, that, in, that um, uh, happened in, in, in the subway station in New York City where, um, you know, a, a thug attacked a woman hmm. and, and stole her purse, but he had a very distinctive <laughs> sweatshirt. And, <laughs> yeah. and the police 
had no no leads, were totally unable to find them. But when they posted the picture within like what, half a day, people said, "Oh, that's so and so," you know. Yeah, <laughs> and they, but, they were led, led to it. So, so the idea is, and, and again, I I I think what I always worry about is is building a big brother kind of society where you know people are just trying to suppress other people and so the idea is how do you find that balance between uh people helping each other especially in terms of thwarting terrorism or crime but at the same time without creating an oppressive um atmosphere you, you know yeah. where where they're paid informers and the government has informers everywhere who are interested in thought control. So that's kind of the background of what the paper uh, discussed. So, yeah. So one thing I was uh, thinking about, George, you know, the so the social networks now, um, I want to get your perspective on this. Um, you know, there are a lot of bots uh, on it. Um, there are a lot of fake news and fake, um, you know, information on it. So would we uh, sort of run out of this type of utility uh, as we go forward? Where are we in terms of real information on social networks nowadays? Well, that's a that's an excellent question, and I, I'm not sure that there is a, a really great answer. Although yeah. one of the things that I'm I, I think of, I think it goes back to to me anyway, the ideal of the educated person. In other words, I, like even if you look at fake news and, and things like that, oftentimes if you just stand back and think about it, a lot of it, it just doesn't make any sense, you right. know? And, and so I think that what I'm hoping is that we can get people who are really thinking and not just saying, oh, you know, I heard this thing repeated here and then it was repeated here again and repeated there. You know, so therefore it must be true because it's been repeated in 10,000 places. Yeah, so, so you would say, George, then, you know, from a home and security perspective, the users of this information will be sophisticated enough uh, to really read through information fairly quickly to get to the right information. Yeah, in other words, like, for example, if somebody reports, you know, a unicorn was sighted on Main Street, okay? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, now, that could be picked up by trolls and repeated 10,000 times, right. you know, and so you might want to say, well, look, uh, an educated person knows there are no unicorns. So whatever was cited on Main Street, maybe it was something unusual, but it was most certainly not a unicorn. <laughs> you know? Or very, very low probability. Of it low probability, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, like, it reminds me of a funny story. I was talking to somebody um, who was uh, working as a ranger in a, in a park in Maine. Yeah. And uh, he said that one time some tourists came rushing excitedly uh, to him to report that there was an alligator in the river. Mm. Okay, now, you don't have to know a whole lot about Maine other than to know it's pretty far north and it's cold. Right. And the probability of there being an alligator in a Maine river is extremely low, mm. you know. And, and so, <laughs> so this tourist, had the tourist thought about it even for a minute, would not have rushed off to the ranger to report an alligator in the river. So, so, so I, I think um, there were all kinds of... Um, fakes and photo fakes and and lots of times you know that old saying if it sounds too good to be true it, it's probably not true yeah. yeah you know what i mean so so there is an element of common sense that if we could get people i mean even not like be real educated it's not that like you have to be an expert on something but you can use common sense yeah you know what i mean like is is somebody really uh, I, I don't know, just have a, a, a $3 billion worth of golds in, in the trunk of their car or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not physically possible. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, what I worry about is really the pictures and videos and things like that, right? So right. artificial intelligence techniques now, if you can make them 
make them, you know, almost undifferentiable, um, you know, in many ways, right? So, so they, so to to kind of filter through that requires a level of understanding mm-hmm. uh, that may not be there. I would I would think uh, maybe eighty eighty five percent of the population. Yeah, it, it's it's true. I mean, Hollywood makes a living out of um, just selling things that are physically impossible. Yeah, yeah, you know, like for example, if you take these superheroes or something, I mean, they violate tons of laws of physics. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, take even for example, um, you know, the nice cartoon of Frozen, right? Yeah. Uh, where the um, the, the princess sort of waves her hand and creates these gigantic snow structures and, and whatever. I mean, the amount of energy that she would be consuming would just turn her into a crisp. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. there's no way a human body could handle that amount of energy or, you know, so, so even aside from people trying to fake people, mm-hmm. we, we live in a world of, um, just kind of nonsense. Make 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 believe. Yeah, it, it, for entertainment, like like you, you know, you, you you go on and there are all these paranormal shows and aliens and and whatnot. Now I'm not saying there isn't life on other planets, but really, I mean, physics is a very established discipline. You know? <laughs> and so, so so your argument, George, uh, is that if I if you understand this correctly. There is so much information out there. Information is being collected um, in a in a in a in a massive fashion today, and and you can actually see the positive effects of some of this in you know in the recent um, you know racial um, type issues that we have seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so what you're arguing is that we should have some sort of a, a system, uh, a process that can bring all that information to some sort of a central processing type thing? Is that is that how you would think about well, it? Well, yeah, I, or, or for example, it doesn't always have to be central. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole idea of um, community watch yeah. is, is that it, it's not necessarily that there's a commander of the community watch. There are a series of volunteers who, if something happens, they'll call a central location like a police department. You you know what I mean? But it's not always the same person. It's whoever happens to be home, whoever happens to look out a window. You know, it's it's the sort of thing that, like, for example, let's say you live in the neighborhood and you glance out and you happen to see your neighbor's two-year-old kid just walking down the street. Now, Mm -hmm. you, you probably imagine that something happened. Somebody left the door open or whatever. But but a responsible person would r- rush out there and try to get the kid off the street. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, right. That's what we're talking about is it's not necessarily, you know, it's not like you would call up some department and say, oh, there's a kid on the street and then forget about it because the kid could get run over. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, right. you would want people to, to take action. Um, now, getting back to the fake information, I think, it really um, points out the importance of educating people mm-hmm. so that they understand something about their world, about what's logical, what's not logical, how people behave, uh, and things like that. And when they're being fed lies and, and, and things like that, a lot of people just kind of accept what's given to them. And what I think is important is to cultivate a more critical um, attitude, like, is this possibly true? How, how can I verify this? Okay, so it, it, in other words, like, not just, you know, from some websites or Facebook pages, because people can control it. Is there some other way that, that I can um, verify this? Yeah. You know, like if five different new networks are all reporting exactly the same thing, or six different newspapers, or, you know, a, Cultivating a more skeptical attitude, I think, is important. Yeah, uh, I I agree with that. Uh, but it is, uh, it's you know, if decision making is going to be distributed, um, you know, in terms of uh, partial information, mm-hmm. 
then uh, educated society would become a necessary uh, requirement for that to work. I mean, we can already see issues with that, right? Uh, people calling police departments because they find somebody of color in the park, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so so if we cannot get to an educated society, then we cannot, I, I, I you know, I feel like we cannot really have distributed decision decision making in the presence of information. Well, you know, I think that's always been the ideal in, in the American dream. That's why we have public education. In theory, public education is necessary to prepare people to be full participants in a democratic state. Yeah. You know, and and I think that obviously we need to to do, I think, a better job than, than we've done so far. And right. uh, in some ways, it, it may be that, um, you know, the COVID-19 is, is causing people to rethink education. Like, you know, what are the key components? What can you do online as opposed to in person? And a lot of questions like that. And, and, and maybe we can come up with some new answers and sort of revitalize. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to just touch uh, touch on uh, another paper briefly, uh, George. Uh, the problem of interceptor top level domains. Yes. So, so top level domains are things like .com, .net, .org, things like that, right? Correct. And so, so what's the issue here? Well, the issue here is that at one point when the internet started out, there were just a very small number of top level domains. There were .com, .net, .org, .edu was there at the beginning, like you said. But then they started uh, proliferating. So, for example, each country got a domain. Okay, so there's .us, uh, um, .ca, and whatnot. Now, some of those are purposed. Uh, For example, uh, Colombia... The country of Colombia sold its uh, two-letter domain .co mm. is now available for commercial uh, <laughs> okay. use. So, yeah. so, so the idea is that they're now. Uh, last time I checked, and it's probably more now. There were over, I think, seventeen hundred top-level domains. Oh wow! Okay. Okay, and a lot of them are very similar. Like, for example, uh, example, there was uh, a top-level domain .career. And there's a top-level name .careers with an S. The only difference is career versus careers. So let's say um, you, you have a company and you, you do career or counseling or something, and you call yourself smith.career. Hmm. Well, an, uh, someone who's unscrupulous might set up smith.careers right. and hope or vice versa and hope that some of the email that goes to smith.career, the person accidentally types careers or mm-hmm. or forgets to type the S or whatever. And now you can get all the email and you can set up uh, your account in such a way that anything to anybody.career, if they type careers, will come to you. Right. Yeah. So who decides uh, on this TLDs? Uh, what's the mechanism there, George? Well, the mechanism is basically um, you have to pay a, a bunch of money to, high, to an organization that oversees this called ICANN. Yeah. And, and they really, in my opinion, have not done a good job in trying to prevent people from um, registering very similar domain names. So, for example... So you could- yeah, yeah, so so you could so if you're Microsoft, you could technically call ICANN and and create a TLD dot MSFT. Yeah, and, and so it just takes uh, a pot of money. That's all. Right, and and technically they sort of review it to that it, you know that it doesn't cause problems. But my opinion, I have this whole long report where what I do is like if you look at a top level domain. Uh, it'll tell you which ones are just like one letter off. Mm. Okay, so so for example, um, you're familiar with the top-level domain edu, yeah, right. Well, the European Union has a top-level domain .eu. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Now you can imagine that somebody either, you know, meant to type EU, but is so used to typing EDU or this auto completion or something that they send it to something with the same name, but it's either at EDU as opposed to EU. Or what I could do is uh, if say I, I am a, you're, you have to be a European citizen to register .eu, yep. but I could register harvard.eu. Mm, I see, yeah. Okay, so now some student is applying or thinks they're applying to harvard.edu, but they make a typo and mm. we all make typos so we know what how that's like and instead they send this email to harvard.eu mm. and i could have some kind of fake site there that could you know cheat them or mislead them or or something there there was one case in the paper where um it was supposed to go to GES, there was an actual case that ended up in court because somebody had the wrong top-level domain and sent confidential papers to the wrong person hmm. and then tried to retrieve it. So, um, um, so, so would you suggest then, George, some sort of a rationalization of that 1,700 TLDs out there? That is the solution? Well, the, that's one solution. The other thing I suggest is I... I had this report that people, before they register a name, yeah. they might look at other, in other words, like if you were going to register smith.career, you might also want to register smith.careers. Right, right. But that becomes it, expensive it, for, you know, startups and things like that. Well, it could be, but, but the idea of the report is it shows you which top-level domains are close to other top-level domains. Okay, so, yeah. So, so, for example, if you're going to register smith.career, it's not going to cost you that much more to register both smith.career and smith.careers. <laughs> but you don't have to register smith. Um, that oh, the cycling oh, club, yeah. okay, because <laughs> nobody's going to confuse cycling club with career, but they might confuse careers in, in, in career. Similarly, there was like engineering and, and engineers and engineering. So, so, so the idea is that you look at the domains that might be confused hmm. and, and to protect yourself because no one else is going to protect you you register uh, domain names that might be potentially confusing, but a lot of people don't even realize that the potential exists. Right, right. Yeah, so so that's interesting. So the, anybody could create a TLD. They don't really have a monopoly over that TLD. Once they, once they pay ICON and they, they create it, then anybody could use that TLD with their, their name. Right. Well, well, here's the thing. The yeah. person who creates the TLD controls it. So if you want to, like, for example, if I said a TLD, say, radio, dot radio, yeah. anybody who wants to register dot radio would have to come to me and I would charge them whatever oh. I want. Okay. 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 So it's a business. People register um, domains for various reasons, like in some cases, I think there are a couple of like uh, NYC or New York City or something like that, you, you know, that like restaurants and, and, and hotels and stuff. When, when we had active restaurants and hotels, <laughs> right. we consider registering those, you know, for yeah. advertising purposes. So, okay. so the idea is that there are legitimate reasons, you know, like, like for example, somebody might want to help promote hotels, so they might register the top-level uh, domain name dot .hotel. Hmm. Okay. Then whoever wants to have, like, say, um, you, you know, you, you had an inn, like Old Faithful Inn, yeah. and then you could register Old Faithful Inn dot .hotel. Right. Okay. Right. But you have to pay the, the TLD owner some amount. You have to pay the TLD owner, and some TLD owners charge a lot, and and, you know, like .com is relatively inexpensive, but there are TLDs that are, you know, hundreds of dollars. And, and there's some TLDs that are restricted. Like, for example, to get a .us, you have to be a citizen of the U.S. .eu, 
you have to be a citizen of the European Union. So there are a lot of country domains that you have to, you know, if you want a registered domain, you have to be a citizen of that country. Others are available to anybody, like .com, .net, .org, available to anybody in the world. .edu is restricted to educational institutions in the right. U.S. Yeah, so, so what you're suggesting, George, if I understand this correctly, uh, you can create a little program um, taking into account all the 1700 TLDs out there. And if somebody wants to register a, uh, a domain with a TLD, uh, you can get some guidance as to what is close to that. Right. And, and essentially get all of those in one shot. Yeah. See, like, for example, even IBM, let's say, yeah. um, doesn't have registrations in all 1,700 uh, categories. But they, they certainly have IBM.com. They probably have IBM.co because yes. it's, close, it's one letter off, you know, and then of course IBM probably has in different countries where, you know, so like if there's IBM Canada, they probably have IBM.ca, you know, things like okay. that. Okay. okay. But even IBM, like I was uh, part of the experiment, I think I was able to register like IBM-USA.com or something like that, which is confusingly close. Right. Right. Yeah, that it's a problem. Um, and, and I don't know what the what the long term solution might be. Uh, I want to jump into another paper, George. Uh, sure. It's uh, it's uh, you. Uh, it's entitled the metric at the end of the rainbow, in which right. you say it is common to see statements such as the following. Defining effective information security metrics has proven difficult. Even though there is general agreement that such metrics could allow measurement of progress in security measures and, at a minimum, rough comparisons of security between systems. However, general community agreement on meaningful metrics has been hard to achieve. Uh, this is due to, the, due to in part, uh, to the rapid evolution of IT, as well as the shifting focus of adversarial action. And you're, you're basically arguing here is that there cannot be there are no metric that you can measure that sort of um, takes all the information in, right? Yeah, I, I mean, people have this belief that they can take, you know, this fact and this fact and this fact and some other fact and come up with a consistent way that it all boils down to number, you know, yeah. so, so that I, I do this, 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 and this gives me a security score of 70. But if I do some other collection of things that gives me a score of 72 and 72 is better than 70. So I'm more <laughs> secure than, yeah. than that person. And what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, and it, I back it up with some uh, mathematical arguments. It's related to something known as Arrow's theorem is yeah. that basically you have to figure out what, what your basic criteria is, what your one factor is, and then you can rate things. But if you try to, incorporate six different things mm -hmm. you're essentially either going to have an inconsistent measure or it's really going to be dominated by one of those things right right yeah one of the things you know there, there's obviously math here uh one of the things that i find kind of amusing is that uh you you say um you can apply arrow's theorem to the fact that the only method that produces a logically consistent choice from a group of logically consistent people uh, in, a, in an election context is to appoint a dictator that let that person right. make all the choices. <laughs> we have many democracies around the world that's close to this now. So, 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 uh, so what's the argument there? Uh, can we talk about it in less mathematical ways? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the, the basic thing is, and what you can see it in practice, Okay, yeah. if, if you have a democracy and you have lots of opinions, people sort of point out, well, you know, sometimes you have um, inconsistent, logically inconsistent results. And the answer is yes, you know, because, um, you know, one set of factors gets weighed, you come up with one decision, then, then you know, then other people come in, they have other factors and you change the decision. I mean, 
look at your own life. I mean, like you're trying to decide something. I mean, how many of us have struggled with, well, gee, if I do this, it looks like it's a good idea. If I do this, it looks like a bad <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, and, and so the idea is just that we have to understand that decision-making, uh, especially if it has complex uh, parameters, that we can't really all factor them in unless there's like a common measure like like people love rankings mm. right they, they they're all these college rankings and stuff but if you boil them down you'll you'll see that probably a lot of them really relate to the size of the endowment or the <laughs> faculty ratio or, or, yeah. or something like that but they'll come in and they'll tell you oh you know we factored in these six things but the answer is, no, you haven't. You've either taken those 60 things and all reduced them to a particular scale. Right. You, you know, where we're going to give so many points for your student-faculty ratio. We're gonna, you know, so there's this abstract scale. So you basically have taken all the parameters and, and reduced them to one. Right. Or um, Arbitrarily. So, you know, this happens in, as you know, uh, big companies all the time. You know, senior decision makers will say, hey, I can deal with more than two numbers. And so you guys have to go get, you know, the 1,500 different uh, things that you measure and then drive it down to two numbers so that I can make a decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and ultimately, it's not how, how it works. It, in fact, it's impossible. You, right. you can't, you can't um, that, that any sort of ranking system ultimately there's there's something that dominates the decision okay yeah. and 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 so one of the things that i was trying to do is not to say well you can't make decisions but the point is you have to look at a situation and say you know what is the dominant factor mm. okay like like when 911 um happened okay you know people yeah. said oh you know we can look at this we can look at that but why were the targets selected? Well, to some extent, they were selected because they were symbolic. And mm -hmm. they were trying to damage the, the reputation, the image of the United States. They didn't really care about economic disruption per se. Mm -hmm. They hit the World Trade Center, the Pentagon. They tried to hit the White House, right? Right. Okay. Um, because those were very visible symbols. So, so, so even, um, I don't know if you remember, but around that time, there, there, were, there were these cases of, of, of sniper shootings. Yeah. And, and, and then everybody said, oh, you know, it's Al-Qaeda, this and that. And I was pretty sure, and I would tell people, I don't think it's Al-Qaeda, <laughs> because that's not the way Al-Qaeda they don't cause disruption by shooting unknown people in parking lots. Right. That, that's just not the way they do it. They, they cause disruption with big symbolic attacks. They would much rather take down the World Trade Center than shoot 20 people in random parking lots of, of stores in suburbia. Yeah. Okay. And, and so that's the point. The point is you have to understand the situation, figure out what the dominant factors are, and then build your analysis on this. But if what you're saying is give me thousands and thousands of, piece of data, pieces of data and I'm going to, you know. Just boil it down to, uh, down to, to, to one number. Yeah. Which yeah, is completely, completely ad hoc and completely arbitrary. So, yeah. so what you're saying almost, uh, George, correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you're going to do that, it's really no point doing it. You you might as well just, you know, you just appoint somebody uh, who, who says yes or no and just go with it. Well, I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying that. I'm just saying that you need to think about it. Like, for example, all right, you see this thing like people are all talking about machine learning and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, but the big knock on a lot of machine learning is that you can't explain why it makes the decisions. Okay. It's a black box. Yeah. It's a black box. But, but more than that, what it does is it essentially 
memorizes lots of configurations and then it gives you one that's sort of so if you ask it like what is this pattern it gives you a close match to a pattern it's seen before but it mm -hmm. doesn't really understand right what the factor is in other words like when people are saying well we want to do this in a logical way so here are our principles and here we're going to make the decision that's not what machine learning does machine learning says oh i've looked at a hundred thousand examples and this one is the closest to what you're showing me so i'm <laughs> gonna say it's it's closest to this one yeah, yeah okay but 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 if you ask it well why did it pick that one the answer is well nobody knows it's buried somewhere <laughs> the neural network that that picked that out there was some kind of similarity that it, but that's also why they can be full of easily yeah right even with facial recognition, if I just put like a plus on my cheek, it suddenly thinks that I'm somebody else, you know? Right. right. Yeah. So it's very brittle. Uh, and so, so, so it, this is not in the paper, but I want to get your perspective. Uh, you know, a lot of excitement around artificial intelligence. We have been here before. Um, where, where do you think uh, AI is heading? Are we getting better? Um, what, what's your prediction, uh, let's say, five, ten years into the future? Well, there's no doubt we're getting better. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly machines can solve all kinds of problems that they couldn't solve before. I mean, back around 1980, I worked with voice recognition systems, and, and they were very difficult. You had to extensively train people, and you, you got, uh, you know, spotty results. I mean, now... Most people can call on the telephone, some kind of voice system, and and say numbers and some simple commands without any training. Even people, you know, who um, have non-standard pronunciation and things like that can often be understood. Right. So, so practically, we've come a long way, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think, you know, so the, the brittleness that you just uh, described, the brittleness of those systems are, you know, seems to me it's also increasing. So there is almost sort of a parallel path to defeat it as well. Yeah, there is. And, and I, I think that what we need to understand is how, how do we, I mean, that's one of the things I, I, I'm trying to comprehend is how do we live with the machines? Right. You know, like, like, for example, no one would go back to horse and buggies, or at least very few people would go back to horse and buggies. Yeah. And, and so we've accepted that and we found a way to incorporate um, automobiles into our lives, even though we suffer quite a few casualties. I mean, tens of thousands of people die every year right. because of um, the automobile. But we've kind of decided as a society that I guess it's worth it. Yeah. But now we're also trying to um, make our self-driving cars. And, and in my opinion, I, I think we will get to cars that at least if they're not totally driving the car can make driving a car a lot simpler. And like, a lot safer. Example, yeah, a lot simpler and a lot safer. Yeah. So for example, if you get into a car and you're drunk, uh, if the car can detect that and refuses to move, um, that could have a huge improvement in in the safety record of of, of automobiles. So, so I think the question is, how do we use machines so that they really help us without being misused by, you know, for evil purposes, like 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 people are. You know, now talking about, well, you can implant these sensors that can, like if a person's paralyzed, you can connect the brain back to the to the paralyzed muscles and the person gets motion. But if you also use that same technology for brainwashing people or controlling people, then I'm not sure I'm so excited about that. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the same, same thing with the facial recognition. I don't really care for the spying on people yet you know when people say oh you know it's this great thing you come in the store and it recognizes your face and it knows you want to buy diapers or something for your kid <laughs> yeah 
you, you know, it's, it, it, it kind of passes from being useful to being creepy. Yeah, but I wonder if it's unavoidable, though, George. You know, if we are on this track, um, we cannot, I, I believe we cannot selectively, um, you know, let it uh, do certain things, but not others. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we, we can, um, we can certainly try to have some input into it. Uh, the question is ultimately, will we be successful? Um, I, I don't know, but, uh, I, I, I believe we should try. Yeah. 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 I want to, uh, jump into a, a, um, a talk that you had, which is very topical and that's about COVID-19 modeling. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite amazing that, you know, the, we cannot go through all the math, but it's quite amazing that these models are reasonably predictive and it, it appears to me that it's giving you fairly good heuristics uh, from a policy perspective that you could deploy, right? So, so, so it's the SIR model. You want to describe that a bit? Yeah, I, you know, models, um, I, I think people need to understand that um, what a model does is it allows you to test certain uh, assumptions. So if you make assumptions, you can see what the consequences will be if those assumptions are correct. And, and that can guide your policy. Okay, so, so what I think people need to understand is that it's not that, that the, the model is like um, an oracle that knows the future. Yeah. It just says that if you make these assumptions, these are the logical consequences. Most, okay. like, most likely outcome. Yeah, in, in other words, this, this is what's likely going to happen. Now, oftentimes, models need to have a simplification just because um, you, you can't handle all the... The, the SIR model, so you, you're looking at sort of three different compartments there, right? Right. Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's the simplest model yeah. that you can have, and you have three uh, groups, S, I, and R, and, and S is, is the group of susceptible people. These are the people who could be infected. And I are the people who are infectious, not infected, but infectious. In other words, these are the people who can give it to someone. So they are they're infected, but they're not really showing any symptoms. They could be asymptomatic, but yeah, well, yeah this, model, this model does not address symptoms. Right. We, we, all it says is you are in the S category if you can catch it. Right. You're in the I category if you can give it to someone. Mm-hmm. And you're in the R category if you have gotten to the point where you can't catch it and you can't give it to someone. Yeah. So 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 what you can so susceptible, infectious, and recovered. Now recovered is kind of a, a strange term because recovered includes people who died. Right. Because they can't infect anybody, but we would in normal usage would not call them recovered. Yeah, right. Right. So, so, so you can you can augment the model by adding, say, a, a, a D category of people who died. But it shouldn't really matter, right, from a mechanics. Well, well, it, yeah. I mean, in this, it, what you're trying to do is to see how um, the flow goes from from people infected. At which point does it stop? It, you know, does does the whole population become infected? Does it get to a certain point? Okay. Now, again, in such a model, you, you have to make assumptions like how many, what's the likelihood that if someone is infectious, that they will actually infect a person? How many people? Now, clearly, if you, if you look at people, you, you know, different people see different numbers of other people per day, you know, like some people maybe have a job where they just sit and program in a room and they don't see anybody all day. Other people are out there mixing with lots of people. Yeah. We don't have the capability of modeling each person's steps. So we make an average We say, well, um, assume a person sees 10 other people per day. So you have, okay? you have set of assumptions in these boxes and essentially right. you have people flowing from S to I to R 
And, exactly. And uh, you also have, you know, sort of policy. Uh, you could change these assumptions, right? For instance, if you have a lockdown, a national lockdown, you can probably substantially affect the eye bucket, right? Yeah. In, in other words, if infectious people don't see anybody, yeah. okay, they cannot then infect anybody. Right. You, you, you know, and, and so in the paper, I show how these different measures affect the different constants and you get different uh, results, okay? The number of people who end up being infected uh, goes, goes down. And it also shows that if you use, say, you, you follow some of these policies, you get the infection rate down, but then you just relax them too early, then you get an explosion and it's, it's as if you hadn't done anything. Right. And then because and then once you have the explosion pulling back, it's really difficult as well, right? Well, it depends. It depends how long the explosion yeah. goes. Yeah. That's, that's where I made the model. And I also even put it in a spreadsheet format so that people can like play around with it, yeah. play around with it and say, okay, if, if I do this for three days and then I do this for six days and then I do this for four days, what will I have? And then it, it and it draws the graph for you. Yeah. You know. So 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 the whole point of the model is to is to give people a simple tool. Um, and by the way, they can download it from my website if if they want to play with this. I have it both as a Python program and an Excel spreadsheet. So you don't really have to uh, be very mathy to, to plug the numbers in and see what happens and I have a couple of samples and you could see that there's just a, a lot of variation and the model can be very instructive to, to help people understand why certain things work and why other things don't work. So for example, the lockdown that reduces the number of people you see per day, right. social distancing, reduces you know the transmission it's like if, if you stay six feet away or ten feet away it becomes less and less likely that you can infect someone yeah. okay and then when you plug those assumptions in you'll see how um how the results depend and how they vary and then you can make your decision on um on that now that's not a professional level model that like if you go to ep epidemic epidem Epidemiology, yeah. Departments yeah. where they have much more detailed things like, you know, people in this neighborhood see so many people and, and you know, we have all these restaurants here so that the contacts in this area are going to be greater. And, you know, that isn't what this SIR model does. This is a very crude that says we have three categories of people. Okay. And it just makes an assumption on, um, you know, the likelihood that people get infected. Now we know, for example, or at least in terms of um, fatality rate, that COVID-19 affects people at different ages, at, at you know, with a different level of ferocity. So if you have, uh, you know, a group of 80-year-olds and a group of 60-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 20-year-olds, they're all going to have different outcomes in terms of how many get infected and how many recover and and all of that and that's not in the model the model just assumes okay each person is the same as every other person and here's the probability of infection yeah so even even this uh, macro model george you know you have some very interesting um observations from it right so for example you say the model very clearly illustrates the value of testing and quarantine, distancing, social isolation, and washing your hands and not touching your face. So those those interventions that you know that people have been talking about right from the beginning of this uh, epidemic pandemic right. uh, are all very important. And all of those, like you say, is going to reduce the the, the growth in the middle bucket in the eye bucket, right? And so, right. so what you're saying here is also, it also illustrates 
you know, the, the flattening the curve uh, is, is extremely important and uh, sort of a lack of speed, right? So if you, if you uh, sort of step back uh, and, and wait and see approach to it, take a wait and see approach to it, uh, that's going to kill you because you're essentially dealing with sort of an exponential process, aren't you? Right. Yeah. I, I, in other words, when it takes off, it can take off very rapidly. Yeah. You know, and 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 people tend to think of more that mo- most processes are linear. You know what I mean? In other words, like like if if I have um, ten people sick today, tomorrow I'm going to have eleven people, then I'm going to have twelve people, then I'm going to have thirteen people. But with this thing, it can go from ten to twenty to forty to hundred to 200 like that. Yeah. So in five days, you've suddenly gone from 10 people to 200, right. you know, as opposed to from 10 people to 20. Right. And so given where we are today, George, what is, uh, in conclusion, what, what, what is your sort of prediction um, as to, you know, how effective we are going to be? We know what the, what the run rates are in these buckets now. Certain states have done it really well uh, in the tri-state area uh, where the pandemic really, really sort of started in the U.S. context, uh, have been able to bring it down to close to zero infection rate. Uh, but mm-hmm. there are the states that have a positivity rate uh, exceeding 20 percent. So in general, where do you think we are in the... Well, I, I think it's difficult to just give a you know, one answer, one size fits all answer. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really think that um, it's it just, I mean, the same thing. I mean, you can see what's happening around the world. Different countries have contained it relatively well by really following policies and, and um, you know, responding immediately and doing contact tracing. And in the United States, um, you know, we have 50 states and it's almost like 50 different programs. <laughs> um, yeah. that, so it's hard to say where we are as a we, but you can see that. Uh, and I think that's one of the worrisome things about all this push to reopen schools is the question mm-hmm. is, how's that going to work out? Are we going to go back to, um, you know, d- July and June when things were racing out of control? Are we going to go back up to 70,000 new infections a day? Um, you you know, it's, it's kind of hard to believe that we're going to avoid it because we don't seem to be doing the things that we need to be doing. I'm not saying everybody's not doing them, but there, there are enough people not doing them so that it, it just keeps things alive i'm afraid yeah yeah i think that's a that's a good point george i mean we have 50 different countries almost and they have you know their own policies but we don't really have you know uh, travel restrictions they're not really countries right they're states and so you have they're behaving as if they're countries from policy perspective uh but they're not countries there is free movement of people uh from one to the other uh which would imply that we will have this disease sort of, you know, moving around the entire country for a long time, if that's the case. Yeah, because what we're doing is we're kind of almost keeping it alive, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, we bring it down and then we start opening it up and spreading it again and, and getting groups of people who weren't infected before infected now. So initially, a lot of this happened, um, the infection happened in the more populated areas. But now it's beginning to show in the less populated, in the rural areas, much less densely packed. And, you know, when, and now when you reopen schools, like especially universities, what are you doing? You're bringing thousands of people from all around the country to one location. Well, that's almost like concentrating the virus. <laughs> in very close proximity, yeah, in college campuses. Yeah. And I know people are blaming students and all that, but really, if, if you bring thousands of people and house them close to each other, and they're gonna interact with the community, I mean, even if they try their best, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. It's just, you know, because 
the virus never sleeps. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's you know it, exactly like you say. We are we are we are keeping it alive. Yeah. In other words, like you could wear your mask ninety nine times out of a hundred. Yeah. But that one time that you didn't wear it and you got close to somebody who got it, you could get an infection and you can't go to the virus and say, look, (laughs) 99% of the time I was good. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about these types of compliance measures, right? So uh, it it is not a fashion show. Yeah, it it really has to be 100% compliance or not. Well, well, what it is is the the, the model that that I point out is a statistical model, okay? which means that you're making certain assumptions and what you're trying to do with these various hand washing things and the mask wearing and the social distancing is not that you're saying if you do these things, you're going to be 100% safe. What you're saying is that your chance of being infected instead of maybe being 50% is going to be 2%. Right. And if you, okay. if you increase that 2% to 10%, uh, just 10%, it makes a huge difference, right, in the model. Exactly. That's that's the point. So what you're trying to do is to tell people, look, you may follow the procedure, but you may still get infected. But on the whole, if we all follow the procedure, many fewer people will get infected, and and this thing will die out faster. That's really the trade-off. You're not you're not saying, oh, you follow the procedure. Because we all slip. Like, I mean, you notice you watch people wearing their mask. Yeah. It's surprising how many people have their mask on, but their nose is above the mask. (laughs) Right. Now, those people would say, well, I wore my mask all the time. And the answer is no, because if your nose is on top of the mask, (laughs) yeah, you're not really being protected by it. And you're not really protecting other people because if you sneeze... All the stuff is not going to be blocked by the mask. So, so there's even even the simple things yeah. that we're asking people to do. A lot of people are not doing them correctly, like even washing your hands. They're trying to tell people wash your hands for 20 seconds because if you want to kill the virus, it's not going to be killed in one second of hand washing. It, it really the soap needs time. To, to break down the walls of the virus. So, so again, um, if you don't do it or, or hand wipe, I, I mean, it's hard to get every square inch of your hand and figure. And the virus just needs a little break. It doesn't need a lot. And so it's very difficult to, to avoid uh, contact. I mean, even like if you get packages and you want to wipe them down, well, then you have to wipe the doorknobs down you have to you know when you try to open the package yeah that you got then you you scissors say to cut the tape but then you have to clean the scissors yeah yeah there is risk everywhere hopefully uh hopefully we'll get through this yeah i mean the the bottom line here is that either you get get hold of it like new zealand or south korea or you, or right. you don't, uh, you know, uh, having sort of doing it is not going to uh, going to make a difference. And so so that is the predicament that we have uh, currently. We don't have a national policy. Um, we have differing opinions in the country uh, as to whether it's important to do or, you know, uh, or otherwise. And so yeah. we cannot get rid of it by sort of doing it. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's a primary message. 20% of the people are not going to wear masks because they think it's ridiculous. Then we're not going to get rid of it. That's that's what the model tells you, you know, that if if you um, can't control those constants, like, and I I make them explicit in the paper, you know, the the various constants, you know, you want to get the rate of infections down. You want to get the the susceptibility down then then you have a chance of it kind of plateauing at at some point if you can't control it eventually everybody's going to get it right now if there's a vaccine and it's effective and people take it um then 
again, you, you affect the, the, the infection rate. Now, one of the things that I talk about in the paper, which was unclear, was whether once you're recovered, you stay recovered. And now there's some evidence that people can get reinfected. So there's not only can you go from susceptible to infectious to recovered, but some of the recovered people can come back to the susceptible category. Okay, so so that complicates the model. And again, um, you know, you can make your assumptions and I encourage people to play with these models and, and make their own assumptions and see what the scenarios are. Well, we have this habit of debating all these results, but people don't want to <laughs> use models. I think if, if everybody who got up there and had an opinion had to give a model, we could have much more constructive discussions. We'd say, okay, so what's your model? Yes. You know, how, how are you um, putting this virus to bed? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully the genius uh, of our politicians um, will help us all uh, to get through this, <laughs> George. Well, you know, ultimately, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to people, you know, because if, if um, people have this experience, they start losing people or they see other people they care about suffering, possibly dying, it's going to change their opinion. Unfortunately, that's a hard way to learn, you know, but I, I think eventually people are going to realize that, you know, we have to do stuff that maybe they don't want to do, but that's going to be the answer. Now, of course, if the vaccine comes, that'll help. But again, you're seeing these statistics, 40% of people say they're not going to take the vaccine. So <laughs> I don't know, you know, this could go on for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, let's hope not. Uh, this has been great, George. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And, uh, and good luck with all this research. Well, thank you. And thank you for your interest. And, um, you know, always glad to talk to you. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye.